We're now going to read the Bible together. Today we are reading from 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, and this can be found on page 1686 in the Pew Bibles. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Paul, Silas, and Timothy. To the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more, and the love all of you have for one another is increasing. Therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and trials you are enduring. All this is evidence that God's judgment is right, and as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are suffering. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his mighty, of his might. On the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. This includes you, because you believed our testimony to you. With this in mind, we constantly pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling, and that by his power he may bring to fruition your every desire for goodness and your every deed prompted by faith. We pray this so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you, and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Good morning. Uh, my name is Paul Harrington. There will be some of you I haven't met yet. I met a few newcomers uh, just out in the yard before we came in. Uh, I'm normally sort of roaming to and fro around the network, the other churches in our network, so I'm not always here in the city, but it's a great joy to be back here for a few weeks as we uh, open up God's Word together. If you are new, I would love to catch up with you after the gathering or at some stage over these next couple of weeks. What we're doing for the next uh, three weeks, or today and two more weeks, is looking at this uh, short letter uh, of Paul to the Thessalonians. Now, can I... It, this is a short letter. Okay, so what I'd love you to do over the next th three weeks is to read this every day. Right, it'll take you about five minutes, I reckon, to read it through. So not a not a big job. It's not like Acts of the Apostles or something like that. Right, you can get this done uh, on a daily basis. And what you'll find is that if you have it echoing around in your your brain and your heart, there'll be things that start to settle and sift and sort as we work through these next couple of weeks. Things will jump out at you. Uh, so I was talking with Sue about. Uh, this first chapter and she said it's interesting the way in which the first chapter you hear the Lord Jesus keeps getting echoed throughout the chapter and you pick up things like that if you keep reading it through and of course the Lordship of Jesus is important when you know, you know that uh, this church was suffering persecution Jesus is Lord no matter what's going on around you you know there are things like that that you'll just pick up so could I encourage you uh, read it next week I'll ask for a show of hands of those who've read it all right so every day no I won't do that but uh, I won't put you on the spot but I'd encourage you to do it as we jump into it let me pray uh, that God in his kindness will speak to us let's pray father we do thank you for your word we thank you that you're someone who hasn't left us in the dark 
you speak so we can know you, understand who you are, what it is to have a relationship with you. And we pray that as we consider this letter to a church written some 2,000 years ago and yet still relevant to us, you'll take these timeless truths and bring them to bear in our lives and our life together as your people. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, most days I think are generally the same. Uh, you know, you, you wake up, you eat breakfast, you go to work or study or attend at various sorts of jobs, uh, you eat lunch, you come home, you have tea, you watch Netflix or catch up with some friends, you go to bed, you sleep, you wake up and you repeat the whole process again. I'm not trying to be depressing, but you know, life is generally routine and marches to the beat of a common drum. But there are some days that are special. They're life-changing, they leave their marks. So I'll show you a picture on the screen. So this is a life-changing day for me when I got married. Let me say the 1980s do have a lot uh, to answer for when it comes to fashion, so I apologise for that. <laughs> Sue, of course, just looks radiant and beautiful still. I, uh, the years have dulled me, but there you go. Uh, that was a significant day. It has been for 40 years. Right? It's really set the, a benchmark for life, one that I give enormous thanks for. Or maybe this, look at this next picture. Maybe you're someone who looks back on that day of graduation or looking forward to that day of graduation and it's one of those benchmark moments that set a, uh, you know, a, a turning point in your life or one you think will actually shape you in that way. Um, both those are examples of personal milestones. But we also know there are days that affect the world and the way the world is shaped. So if I show you this next picture, right, 9-11. And some 20 years later, we still remember and feel the impact of that on maybe people we knew or the socio-political ripples that have occurred as a result of that particular day. When we turn to 1 and 2 Thessalonians, these are both letters that are dominated by a special day. Okay? Uh, you would have heard Jeff preach on 1 Thessalonians earlier in the year, and we come to 2 Thessalonians, but both are dominated by what's called the day of the Lord or the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. So if I just refresh your memory, if we went back to 1 Thessalonians 1, verses 9 and 10, Paul there speaks to this church and says, You turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven. In chapter 2 of the first letter, verse 19, he speaks of when the Lord Jesus comes. Or chapter 3, verse 13, when our Lord Jesus comes. Or chapter 4, verse 16, the Lord himself will come down from heaven. Or you go to chapter 5, verse 2, and it's, it speaks of the day of the Lord. And then there's this lovely verse in chapter 5, verse 8, where he speaks to the Thessalonians, speaks to us too, and he says, we belong to that day. It's a day that is our day a day that captures our hearts and minds. When we turn to 2 Thessalonians, the same day dominates the agenda. So in chapter 1, verse 7, we just heard that read, it speaks of when the Lord Jesus Christ is revealed from heaven. Or in verse 10, just a few verses later, the day he comes to be glorified. That same day, the day of the Lord. Now, just... Just for a moment, let me 
point out a day that's coming up in October, so October the 19th, there'll be a screenshot of this, I think, as well. Uh, on the 19th of October, Mike Rowe, who's a linked missionary with our church, is going to be speaking about the day of the Lord, giving us the big Bible picture on it. This is such an important day, not so much the 19th, although that will be, but the day of the Lord. Can I encourage you to cross that off in your diary and plan to be here so you can hear and inter, you know, interact and ask questions and bounce that around, okay? Deep dive, 19th of October, uh, the day of the Lord. Worthwhile just filling in some background on this church, Thessalonica, and you'd find it if you went back to Acts chapter 17. Uh, Paul visited this church in the early 50s, uh, so about 2,000 years ago now. He was there probably for a month, maybe not quite a month. Uh, He went to the Jewish synagogue first of all. He spoke about the Lord Jesus there. Some people believed. Some of them were Jews. Some of them were God-fearing Greeks. Some were women of social standing or they were quite wealthy and probably a spectrum of other people as well. But there were Jews, some who didn't believe, who became jealous. And so what they did was they rented a crowd, a group of thugs, and basically kicked Paul out of town uh, within that sort of month framework. What would Paul have been concerned about? He's with these people, preaches the gospel, some believe, but he's only there for maybe three, four weeks, kicked out. What do you worry about? Well, he'd only had time to do Christianity 101, and then he's out of there. these, These guys weren't mature Christians, they were young Christians. And not only that, Paul faced hostility and was booted out of town, but he left these young believers to face the same hostility in their context. Young Christians facing huge pressure from the people around them to renounce their faith. If the apostle, you've got to think, man, I'm not sure they're going to make it. Come back a few months later, would they have just completely put everything to one side and bounced back to where they were? Would they stand? So Paul writes these letters, and they're probably the earliest letters that we have in the New Testament. Letters to encourage them. Letters so that they will stand firm in the face of opposition, in the face of the headwinds. And there's a big emphasis on the day of the Lord. Not a day that these guys were looking back to, but a day that they were anticipating. A day that they were looking forward to. A day that was meant to shape their perspective on life, especially in the face of opposition. And for us, can I say, we're still looking for that day. We're still looking for the day of the Lord when he returns to this world. A day where he puts things right. A day where history is finalised and God is seen for who he is. That day is meant to shape our perspective as well and regulate the how we think and how we operate. So where does Paul go? He starts off with Paul thanking God. You pick it up in verse 3. We ought always to thank God. If you're a, a praying type person, what do you find yourself giving thanks to God for? You know, if you were doing a bit of a 
you know, a check on your prayer life, what you, what you thank God for, what would make your top 10? If you're like me, I reckon it's easy to find yourself uh, giving thanks to God for the immediate, uh, the sort of stuff that's coming up on a regular basis, you know, maybe uh, for health or for the stability of the country in which we live, relatively speaking, for food on the table, uh, for you know, pleasant climate that we live in, uh, for holidays, you know, got a long weekend this weekend. There's lots of things you can immediately give thanks to God for. But I want you to notice what Paul gives thanks for. Look what he, what he says in verse 3. Or always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more. Remember, he left them young, untaught, facing opposition, but they hadn't taken a backward step. And that just fills his heart with joy and thanks. They were growing in trusting God. And, and isn't that what counts? Like when you think about life and what's going on, isn't this at the heart of what's important? Trusting in God, deepening in our knowledge of God. He goes on, verse 3, gives thanks for the love you have for one another and that it's increasing. Now remember the constituents of this young church. We had Jews who had been converted, then there were the God-fearing Greeks. Some of them got converted. Um, how did those two groups get on? <laughs> they were historically, there was huge animosity between those groups. And then you've got some wealthy women. And I take it we've got some less wealthy people in the church. And so we've got different social standings, different racial backgrounds, plenty of, you know, tension, potential tension and ammunition but the profound work of the gospel united them in love for each other now i constantly think that uh, when i'm here in the city at these these congregations i think it's a pretty diverse racial group of people uh, we come from all sorts of different countries across the globe uh, some of us are quite well off some of us uh, quite poor, probably on average, you know, the educational standard's pretty, pretty high, but not all of us. You know, it's a great mixture. What do we have in common? So we're not a common interest groups. You know, we all barrack for Collingwood or something like that. Yeah, it's not what, you know, people boo. Did I hear that? No, that's not what draws us together. You see, the gospel of God's mercy and grace is at the heart of our relationships. And when it is... It drives the love and the care that we have for one another. See, we're united by that conviction in God's mercy and that shapes our love. Then he goes on. He also gives thanks that they've persevered under persecution. Verse 4. We boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and trials that you're enduring. The, um, when you hear the, the boasting word, you think, oh, it's a bit of a clangor. Uh, you know, we're not sort of positive about people who boast. But you get the point. He's, he's boasting or uh, bragging about God's grace and mercy, not something he's done or even this church has done. 
but he delights in what God is doing in their midst. Then he gives thanks for their perseverance in persecution and trial. I want you to notice, he doesn't pray that the persecution will stop. Isn't that interesting? Jesus actually promised that his followers would face opposition. You go to a place like John chapter 15. Or if you look at Acts chapter 4, you see uh, Peter and John arrested and thrown in prison. They're released, they go out and they catch up with uh, the, the church of God's people there in Jerusalem and they pray. What do they pray after getting released from prison? Oh, thank you God that we got released from prison. No, they don't. It's interesting. God, please make sure we don't go back to prison. No, they don't pray that way. What do they pray? They pray, God, help us to speak the word about Jesus boldly. And that's what they do. And do you know what happens? They get arrested again and thrown in prison, and this time beaten as well. No, no prayer for persecution to stop, but the fact that they endure in the midst of persecution. It is hard, I think, when we face opposition. It's hard when you live in a world that's um, struggling under the burden and the groaning of the frailty of creation, sickness and death and heartache and pain. Paul gives thanks because these guys are enduring. Nine o'clock this morning, I was taken by surprise because Maggie Cruz uh, wandered in through this door and sat down. Some of you might know Maggie. She's a linked missionary with our church and has been probably for about 30 years, I reckon. Long time. Uh, worked in uh, various countries throughout Africa, more recently in Cambodia. And seeing her, I was reminded of some of the early days when she worked in the Congo. And that was a country that was torn in terms of civil strife. And I read of a situation uh, where Maggie was expecting rebel forces to come into the village, and they came. And so what she did was she took herself out the back of the place she was staying and hid herself down a drop loo, where she was pretty confident none of the soldiers would find her. See, her, her life was hanging by a thread. And I remember praying for Maggie that God would just preserve her life. But of course, seeing her here this morning, the thing that I give great thanks to God for is not so much that he preserved her life, although I am thankful for that, and it's a good thing to pray for, but she has persevered in her service of the Lord Jesus Christ. She's come back from a difficult time in Cambodia, but she is still confident in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ and confident that God is superintending his world for his glory and she is trusting in him. She has persevered both in opposition and in heartache and struggle. So that's something to give thanks for, isn't it? Absolutely. They persevered. So when you're in the trenches and struggling... What do you need? Well, you need, you need hope. C.S. Lewis 
in uh, his book, Mere Christianity, he says this about hope. Hope is one of the theological virtues. This means that a continual looking forward to the eternal world is not, as some modern people think, a form of escapism or wishful thinking, but one of the things a Christian is meant to do. Meant to do. Meant to look forward. And so what Paul does here is he paints that vivid picture of the day of the Lord so that the Thessalonians, going through various struggles, are dominated not by their struggles but by the future and allowing that to imp impact them in the midst of those present struggles. And he talks about it being a day of judgment. Look at verse 5. God's judgment is right, and as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God. See, when Paul wrote, they were being pounded for their faith, but he says at the end of the age, that will be made right. Now, we live in a world where it, it feels, doesn't it, like injustice flourishes and seems to come out on top on a regular basis. And if you're like me, what you find yourself doing is, is fairly regularly crying out, how long, O oh Lord? You know, how long will you delay? Friends, Jesus will return and there will be a day of reckoning, total reckoning. And on that day, believers, verse 5, will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God. Now, at this point, he's not saying believers will have earned their way to heaven or that uh, somehow your suffering merits your entrance into heaven, into the presence of God, but rather that that day will vindicate believers for their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. It'll be that sort of day. Verse 7, there'll be relief to you who are troubled. Opposition for following Jesus, that'll be at an end. The pain of living in a broken world, that will be resolved. And then in verses 7 to 9, we're given what I think is a terrifying dimension to the day of the Lord. In fact, in verses 8 and 9, I think we have some of the strongest statements in the New Testament on the judgment of God. Verse 8, he that is, the Lord Jesus, when he's revealed from heaven, that's from verse 7, he, verse 8, he'll punish those who don't know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They'll be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord. So when you hear those words, what are you thinking and what are you feeling? when you hear these very strong words. Maybe you're thinking, how, how could a God of love possibly do this? Or maybe you think, oh, this is just sort of Christian scare tactics to sort of worry people into trusting in Jesus. Or maybe you're like me, and I find myself thinking about people I love and care for who haven't yet put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ? 
I want you to notice that the focus here is on the rightness and the fairness of God's judgment. Verse 5. All this is evidence that God's judgment is right. Or in verse 6. It says God is just. You see, the picture here is is of the consequences if you reject the Lord Jesus Christ, if you reject the one who loves you enough that he sent his son into this world so you can be forgiven and have relationship with him. And the point is that if you ignore God and you turn your back on him, then on the day of the Lord, he will turn his back on you. That's the picture being painted. Verse 9, it speaks of everlasting destruction. What's everlasting destruction? Well, I think it's explained as you go further into that verse. It's to be shut out from the presence of the Lord, to be cut off from the source of all goodness and love. It's a picture of, of isolation, not, not downtime or, or me time, but actually the absence of connection with God or, or anyone. Can that be fair? We're used to injustice in this world, but can I say at the end of the age, I don't fully understand all this, but at the end of the age... This I know. Verse 6. God will be just. He will be just. And for believers, friends, this is, this is both a comforting and a sobering word. That is, it's comforting. Look at verse 5. It, it speaks of being counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you're suffering. That is, you may be suffering unjustly now, but there is a day of perfect justice coming. There may be trials now, but they will, will come to an end. Last Sunday, I was down at um, the Trinity Church down at Lockleys. And I met a couple who used to come here, uh, Rod. Rod's suffering with motor neurone disease now, recently diagnosed with that. And that's a disease that's just a thief, as far as I can tell. And I spoke to him, just, you know, I hadn't had the chance to catch up with him. He was very clear. He said, look, you know, he, he found it hard to communicate, but he said, uh, we all die sometime. And uh, he said, but, but God has given me certain and sure promises that, that take me forward in terms of my hope and confidence. And then his wife, I got to talk to her afterwards, and she said, oh, Rod is so settled in his trust in God because he knows what his future holds. There's comfort for believers, but it's sobering too. At the end of the age, this is a truth that will count for eternity, whether you have trusted in Jesus or, or not. And those who have faith in Jesus... Or those who ignore him, that'll be the basis upon which eternal future is determined. With the Lord or destruction 
when he appears. Will you marvel at the Lord Jesus Christ when he appears? Or will his wrath be upon you? For believers, suffering now, but glory then. Poverty now, riches then. Mock now, but vindicated then. Heaven and hell hang in the balance. What Paul does in verses 3 to 10 is he speaks about perspective as we wait for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. He frames our reality, truth. Then verses 11 and 12, he starts talking about how you pray as you wait for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. You pick it up in verse 11. With this in mind, that is verses 3 to 10, we pray. And his first go-to point is he prays that they will live worthy of their calling. Verse 11. We constantly pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling. Uh, Often people use calling in common language to mean a job or career, but when you come across calling in the New Testament, it's almost always talking not so much about a job, but being a Christian, right? That's the definition of being a Christian. So you go to a place like the first letter of the Thessalonians, chapter 2, verse 12, and Paul urges the believers there to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. So you could try that next time you get together for a social function and someone says, what do you do during the week? And you can say, I'm a Christian. You see? And they'll say, I didn't ask you what you believed, I asked you what you did. But of course, for a Christian, they're interchangeable. What you believe is who you are, you see. I'm not saying this is a great social strategy, right? <laughs> don't uh, don't me hear, hear me advocating. But you, you get the point. It's the mindset you need to have as you live for Christ in this world. And it changes everything, doesn't it? See, say you're in a situation where you have, you know, the boss from hell, the boss who's uh, after credit for doing things and quick to pass blame when things go wrong. The boss that works you way too hard because it comes back uh, in terms of the, the, the numbers on their sheet at the end of the day. The boss who is just tiresome, tedious, and doesn't give you any credit for anything. See, how do you pray in that situation? Right? You, you could pray that your boss has a, a mildly incapacitating heart attack, uh, you know, that that sort of would resolve things in sort of a, a nice, or you just keep praying that your job will be preserved, or how do you live worthy of your calling? You pray your boss gets converted, don't you? You pray that by your life and your words, even with someone you prefer to avoid, you keep speaking the truth of the gospel into that situation. You keep lining up your life in relation to it. So people will ask questions about what makes you tick. Whatever your context, the question is always, How do you represent God well in that situation? How do you fulfill your calling? Paul goes on in his prayer 
And he talks about how the return of Jesus should shape your priorities and goals. Look at verse 11 again with me. That by his power he may bring to fruition your every desire for goodness and your every deed prompted by faith. Don Carson, who's quite a leading uh, evangelical scholar, he calls this the Christian entrepreneur's prayer. Isn't that interesting? Uh, the God will bring to fruition your every desire for goodness and your every deed prompted by faith. Knowing the day of the Lord, what you do is you aim towards it and you do things that build towards that day. I was down at uh, Victor Harbour just a few weeks ago preaching. I caught up with a number of Christians in our church down there who are praying and working to start a new church at Goolwa. You see, because they, they've got this deep desire to see the gospel go out in that town just further down the coast. Isn't that what this is talking about? A desire for goodness, good deeds for the promotion of the Lord Jesus Christ. I was up at Trinity Orgate a few months ago speaking, and uh, one of the, uh, the women in the congregation uh, came to chat to me afterwards. She used to be here in the city, now up, up there at that church. She said, look, I've been praying generally for this non-Christian friend of mine for some years. Through all the trials and the difficulties that they're going through and trying to be helpful and support them and do things like that. So I've realized what I need to be doing is praying that God will give me an opportunity to sit down with them and read the Bible because that's the key issue for them in life. So I've just prayed that I'll be able to do that with her, with her and that I'll have the courage to ask her to read the Bible. See, that's a deed prompted by Faith, that's exactly what's going on there. Do you ask God to help you lead a, go a life of gospel substance? How's that taking shape? Do you, um, are you willing to pray audacious prayers that God will open doors and provide you with opportunities and the courage to actually take up those opportunities? And then Paul finishes on this note. Uh, the note of wanting Jesus to be glorified, verse 12, so that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in him. Back in verse 10, it's already spoken about the day when Jesus comes to be glorified among his people. And all of eternity is heading towards and centres around Jesus. History is moving towards the day when everyone will see him in all his glory. When you're under the pump and you're struggling, uh, it's easy to make life all about you, isn't it? Uh, for you to become the, the epicenter of what's important. It's easy to feel sorry for yourself. And, you know, even when things are tracking well and uh, going along nicely... The focus can still be on our life and actually building our kingdoms. That's, that's the natural sort of trend. But you know, the day of the Lord gives us a different center. Not ourselves, but actually the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is profound. I remember an international student who came to this church 
came to Adelaide to study years ago, studied at Adelaide University, came from a Buddhist background from Asia. And when he arrived, very resistant to the gospel, but started reading the Bible with somebody fairly early on in his degree. Didn't become a Christian during the degree. In fact, it was about five years after he left university that he became a believer. When he became a believer, uh, his Buddhist wife divorced him because he had chosen to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. His family back in Asia cut him off completely. He had no contact with them for several years. They refused to answer any letters, answer any calls. He could not visit them. That was his situation. Then one day out of the blue, his brother-in-law rang him up and said, look, I'm going to Sydney. I'd love it if you could come across to Sydney so that we can catch up. He went to Sydney. They caught up in a hotel. And his brother-in-law said, you have brought extraordinary shame on our family. You have dishonoured us all. And I've been sent to resolve this situation with you. If you agree to sign a piece of paper renouncing your Christian faith, then I will give you a million dollars. And my friend, no, I call him George, said by the end of that meeting, the offer had gone up to six million dollars. Only if you renounce your faith. And I said, when the offer got to six million dollars, what were you thinking? He said, well, he said, I tell you, Paul, what I was thinking was of all the wonderful things I could do with that money for Jesus. You know? <laughs> I said, what happened then? He said, this vision of hell passed before my eyes. See, what good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? You see, the day of the Lord was a line in the sand that shaped all his thinking and his priorities. My guess is that for most of us, the temptation to turn our back on Jesus probably won't be because of an offer of money that we get, get made. My guess is that we'll tend to pull back from Jesus because of the social pressure. It's culturally, you know, we're not flavour of the month as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Or maybe it'll be because of distraction. There are lots of things going on in life and priorities and investments that would take us away. Or maybe it's just the sheer busyness of life that crowds in constantly and we lose track of the reason for the busyness. We forget where everything is heading. My brothers and sisters in Christ... Um, we are to let the day of the Lord profoundly shape our worldview, our thinking about what's important in life, and then to get on with that, putting that on the ground in practice as we anticipate that day. Can I pray for us? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do. We thank you that you speak to us. Thank you that you spoke to this, this little church in Thessalonica. Thank you that they are a group who so grasped hold of the gospel that they weren't going to be shaken or moved. Father, we thank you 
that you stand behind the promise of the day of the Lord Jesus when he'll return to this world. And at one level, we just look forward with eager anticipation of that day, longing for justice to be right, longing to see the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, see him for who he really is completely. Father, we pray that that day will shape our thinking, shape our hearts, shape our priorities, shape our words, shape our actions, shape our life together as your people. Help us to live now for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.